and investing don't have to be scary words. The We Talk Sense podcast is here to help you learn more about money and take control of your personal finances. The We Talk Sense podcast is not a financial advisor. This podcast is made for entertainment and educational purposes only. All information shared is of a general nature and does not take into account your personal situation. You should consider whether the information is appropriate for your needs and where appropriate, seek professional advice from a financial advisor. For more information, please check out wemoney.com.au slash disclaimer. G'day, welcome to another installment of We Talk Sense, a podcast presented by WeMoney. As always, you're joined by me, Dan, your resident finance expert. And me, Blaze, your resident shopaholic. Now, this will be the last time we are talking to you from We Talk Sense for the year, but don't worry, we will be back after the Christmas break. Dan, what are you getting up to? What, are you putting your feet up over Christmas? What are you going to do with the time off? Blaze, this time of the year, they usually be on a plane somewhere or going out with the family to some semi-exotic location, but uh, we are planted and rooted in Perth and we're not moving too far. So between Christmas and New Year, we're going to spend some time at home uh, catch up on a bit of Netflix and just take it a little bit easy. How about you? Sounds very nice and wholesome. Uh, I love Christmas. I love this time of year. So I think I will just be getting in my car every morning, heading straight to the beach and getting as many swims and as many milkshakes in as humanly possible <laughs> over the time off. Uh, yeah, I love a little bit of frozen dairy. So very much looking forward to that. But enough about Christmas. This is our last episode of the year. I'm sad to, excited and sad for, you know, the year ending, but excited for the year ahead. We've got so much in store for 2021 for the We Talk Sense podcast. Heaps of amazing guests lined up. But what are we talking about on the podcast today? Blaze, today we're going to talk with a TikTok and Instagram influencer by the name of Tash Invest. We've seen a huge explosion of these uh, category of influencers known as uh, fintokers or finfluencers <laughs> that um, were really just taking... Did you make that up? No, I didn't. I'm, I'm going to give that to the Australian Financial Review who published an article just very recently talking about this uh, very phenomena. But I think it's very true and it's, it's really emblematic of all the guests that we've had on. So if you think about influencers like Justin and now Tash and Emily, of course, on the first ever episode here, We Talk Sense, uh, they're all people in that category. We think this is an exploding trend, and I'm very excited, as I'm sure you are, Blaze, to have Tash on today's show. What else is on the radar? Well, after we talk to Tash, we will also be taking a look at pet insurance to see if it's all it's cracked up to be. But before we get into that, news. Dan, what headlines have been grabbing your attention this week? Blaze, one of the biggest headlines to come out is the ACCC report or their inquiry into home lending. This one is pretty big. Basically, the ACCC is one of Australia's largest regulators and regulates everything to do with financial services. This report really delved into some of the core systemic issues that the home loan industry has faced for pretty much forever. And they've come up with some four recommendations as part of their report to government. And some of these, I think, are going to be exciting for a lot of Australians. So those four points are, is basically the ACCC has recommended that lenders 
uh, prompt borrowers to engage into the home loan market and see if they could benefit from switching products. It also requires... Wait, so then- you mean encouraging refinancing, that lenders will be encouraging... Is that what you mean? How does that work? Uh, Blaze, yes, it is really interesting. I'm not sure how much of the banks will actually embrace this particular recommendation. And we'll have to wait and see whether or not the government actually mandates the banks to take up the recommendations inside this report. But moving to point number two, it's also requiring lenders to provide a standardised discharge authority form to borrowers to complete to allow for appropriate authorised third parties, for example, mortgage brokers, uh, to complete and submit the discharge forms on the borrower's behalf. And this is really big because every time... Uh, you try to refinance your mortgage, the bank is going to ask you, well, please go and download the standard discharge forms from the website. And that is a pretty painful process. So you've completely lost me, Dan. What is a standard discharge form? How, how does this actually benefit the, the borrower? Well, this benefits uh, all Australians who have got a home when they're looking to switch because one of the core documents that can become incredibly confusing for a lot of borrowers is that banks have their own forms which you need to fill out in order to discharge your mortgage. Now, these forms can be very complicated. A lot of these forms are required to be sent via fax or in person directly to the bank branch themselves. Via fax? (laughs) Oh, my God. Do you also have to travel back in time to whenever we used faxes? Goodness me. Exactly. And that, to be frank, Blaze, I think we all know why that's the case. It's add more friction to the process that people don't switch their mortgage. And so I think the the government has really cottoned on to these uh, tactics that a lot of the banks use in order to prevent people from switching their mortgages. So I think... That's a really good point. But moving to point number three is suggesting that all lenders should be subject to a maximum time limit of 10 business days to complete the discharge process, which is phenomenal news. It basically puts lenders on the spot if there is a discharge form that has been submitted. So this is the process where you tell your current bank that you're switching to another bank that it's going to happen. And that is really good because it means that borrowers can start uh, saving quicker with the new letter they're moving to and potentially going to a cheaper rate. So with that as a recommendation, I'm guessing that in the past, banks can make it, drag it out and make it a 20-day, 30-day, two-month sort of period, which means that they're still getting paid the extra interest and in getting their home loan repayments in that time from that customer before they completely let them go in and let them refinance with another institution, I guess. Absolutely. And the final recommendation is that the recommending the government that the ACCC should continue to inquire and monitor about competition and pricing in the home loan market. And it's led to some speculation about what this potentially might mean with some industry groups saying that you might actually see something on your bank statement that tells you how efficient you are what, and, what will actually, and what people are speculating in the marketplace, including some consumer groups, is that you might get something on your bank statement that will tell you the current home loan that you're with and whether or not it's actually competitive or not by some type of rating scale, which I think would be really cool to tell people whether or not you know they're paying too much you know, on their mortgage or if they're on the right appropriate product, which is really uh, a massive change to where the current market is at the moment. And I think, Blaze, for people listening to the podcast who do have a mortgage, we all know how this system works. You get a home loan, you're, you're, in, you're in that mortgage for about two or three years, and then you know over uh, you know the period of the years that you have that mortgage that the rates start to go up in the background. And then, voila, five years later, you wake up and you realize that you're paying probably a percent more than you know what's currently available in the market. So I think these measures from the government couldn't come soon enough, and let's hope they enact that into some type of law or, 
legislation or potentially some very, very firm uh, guidelines that most banks have to follow here in Australia. What say you, Blaise? That sounds really positive. So these are just recommendations from the ACCC at the moment. They're four suggestions, but they're not set in stone. They're not 100% going to happen. Is that right? That's correct. I think the way that these typical uh, reports get handed down is that they're uh, uh, for informational purposes for the government to consider and then potentially consider legislation. And hopefully that some of these points actually do become legislation because if they do, I think that a lot more Australians will be much better off. And there is precedent to this. Uh, there was discharge fees that were abolished uh, about sort of five or six years ago that basically allowed lenders not to keep you within that product and charge you onerous fees to keeping you locked in. And the government moved pretty swiftly after they received their last report from another government agency to make that amendment. So hopefully that we get all four of them. But even if we get three or even two, I think we're in for some uh, some interesting times ahead, particularly for the for the major banks. Yeah, this sounds awesome. The first point you made about uh, banks letting their customers know when a a better product is available, I think that will be really interesting. And I also am excited because I feel like it will make the market more competitive and will also, it's sort of taking a proactive approach. It's, I guess it's similar to most things, you know, if you want to save on your phone insurance, if you want to save on your home insurance, your car insurance, whatever it is, you should be reviewing your policies each year and calling up your lender or your institution or whatever to, to get a better rate. Whereas instead of putting that on the consumer to be doing that this time, it sounds like the onus is then on the lenders to push a better uh, product suggestion back onto the consumers and let them know, hey, you're paying 2.1. Did you know you could be paying 2% with this product here? So yeah, I think it will increase competition in the market, which will hopefully have uh, consumers or borrowers winning out in the end. Absolutely, Blaze. I'm very excited. And uh, I think from uh, from a wee money perspective, you know, this is something that is only going to encourage uh, the new era of people looking at their finances, paying more attention, and, and removing the, the friction and barriers from getting the best possible outcomes. And I think we should probably keep this uh, under wraps until the new year. But I think uh, a lot of wee money members are going to be very excited about some changes that we're making in order to make this very easy for them to uh, get the best possible outcome in the new year ahead. So stay tuned, folks. Dan, cast your mind back to when you were 23 years old. When you were 23, what was the best way to learn about money and personal finances? Well, Blaze, we don't have the plethora of information that we do now with the Barefoot Investor and all these internet ways of learning about money. Uh, Back in my day, at the age of 23, I was thinking about entrepreneurship and the best piece of advice that I got was from my parents. Just imagine a very thick Eastern European accent uh, me telling my parents that I wasn't going to get a full-time job at a bank and work there for 20-odd years. I was going to go out there and, uh, and go it alone. And uh, the advice that I got was, you're silly, you're crazy, you shouldn't be doing any of that. So to be frank, Blaze, my financial advice isn't what it is today, thank goodness. Um, but I'm lucky I got through that process, especially with my parents. How about you? Well, when I was 23, that's it's interesting. Good, good advice from your parents, I guess. No, maybe it... Uh, <laughs> Maybe that advice is what spurred you on with the motivation you have to start to start your own thing. But yeah, learning about personal finances and money. For me at 23, I would ask my family who wouldn't know a lot, to be honest, or I would go to the internet and internet forums. 
But the reason I ask is because today joining us, we have a special guest who spreads information about personal finances and managing your money through social media. She is a 23-year-old uni student who managed to save over $96,000 last year, and she's also recently bought her own apartment and has already amassed a net worth of over $141,000. This self-taught personal finance influencer now has over 18,000 followers on TikTok and another 7,000 on Instagram, and those numbers are continuing to grow. As well as sharing information on personal finance, she's also an avid traveler and loves having fun in the ocean, diving and wakeboarding. She joins us now via the magic of the internet. Welcome, Tash, or as you may know her, Tash Invests. Hi, thanks so much, Blaze. That was such a nice intro. I love that. (laughs) How are you going, Tash? Yeah, I'm good. Super excited to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, Tash, I am super curious Talk us through your investing story, how you started off, and what what's your strategy? Yeah, so my first ever investment, I bought four shares of the S&P 500 index when I was 18, but I had no idea what I was doing, so I just bought it, and then I let it sit there for ages, and then I was super scared of the share market for a while because I knew nothing about it, so I just saved and saved until I had my apartment deposit, and then I bought my apartment, and after that, I was like, okay, cool, what's next? And I just started like reading all through the internet and following heaps of other people on Instagram. And now I just invest in index funds. So I buy and hold index funds, which is really cool and super exciting. That's super interesting. Now, Dan, I'm sure you are very curious about this as well. We touched on it in the intro. You saved over $96,000 last year. How on earth did you do that? Are you ever sleeping? How many jobs do you have? How how on earth did you manage that? Are you actually a robot person? Tash, before before we started the show today, uh, Blaze and I said, oh, my goodness, I was just reading through all your achievements and uh, we thought if you're ever going to change your name, we would call you Terminated Tash because (laughs) you're absolutely killing it in terms of uh, what you've achieved so far at a very, very young age. Um, Yeah, we'd love to know how you how you went about doing that at, uh, at a Thank very, you. very formative part of your uh, career. Um, I just work a lot, I guess. Like, I don't feel like it's that big of an achievement because it's been super normal. So, it kind of started off when I first left school when I was 17. I really wanted to travel, but to travel, you have to save a lot of money. So, I worked like three or four jobs at a time. We'd work every single day. We'd work like three jobs in a day going from one to another. And then I would do that for three months. And then I would travel for a few weeks and then I would come home and just repeat. Um, but then I kind of got into the mindset of working a lot. So when I started working normal hours and having days off, I was like, oh, this is easy. Like you can work five days a week and then go home. Like this is so good. Um, so now like I work one job and I work overtime and I also work like my side hustles and my side jobs, but I still have free time. So it doesn't feel that hard, but yeah, it's just like a lot of working, but I quite, I like, I love my job. So it's fine. And like, I love working and I love like achieving things. So it's just been a lot of fun, but yeah, just working, I guess no special secret. I know you just said you have free time, but how much free time are we talking? Because that sounds like you are keeping yourself very busy. Is it three minutes a day? (laughs) I have a lot more free time now than I used to. I used to never have free time. I would literally just like work and work and work and I wouldn't have free time until I went on holiday. But since COVID's happened, I've unfortunately had to learn what work-life balance is, which is quite quite hard. I used to like freak out when I had free time. I'd have a whole day free and be like, oh my God, what am I going to do? But now I, I have a bit more free time. My job at the moment, I work like two days on and I I do like sleepover shifts at a group home. So you're like on call for two days and then you have two days at home. Um, so that's a lot better because then you kind of have the days off. But then I guess in my days off, I do like Tash Invest stuff now. So, but that's more fun. It's more fun than like normal work. 
Amazing. Uh, Tash, talk to, me, talk to us about buying your apartment and uh, what was that a, a big goal for you and, and how did you go through that sort of process and uh, maybe walk us through the saving journey and also the property buying journey and uh, how you navigated that? Yeah, so I kind of always knew I wanted to buy property. So I've kind of been saving like since I was 17, like my whole life. Um, even as a kid, I like saved my pocket money because I always knew I wanted to buy property because that's what my parents do. Um, they invest in property. But yeah, buying an apartment was actually really random. Like it was the middle of COVID. All my trips had got cancelled for the year. So I had a lot more money than I was planning to have. And I just went to a home open and loved it and bought it like three days later. So there wasn't much like preparation or planning. Wow. I just saw it and liked it and was like, this is perfect. And it's like so in my budget as well. And it's brand new because I really like like new modern things and not older houses. And the amount of money I had, I couldn't really afford like a new apartment in a really nice area. So I saw this and I was like, this is great. And I bought it. So yeah, no, no wise words there. I would love to have enough money saved up to spontaneously go to a home open and decide three days later that I was going to go to buy the house. <laughs> well, I was kind of like, because I just started learning about shares and I was kind of, especially like during the like the drop with COVID, I was like, oh, maybe I'll just like put all of my deposit into shares and not buy property for a few years. But then once I saw it, I was like, no, like, this is it. This is perfect. It's so nice. And it's like so affordable. Like my mortgage is $234 a week. Like it's super cheap. And I think to break even with like um, council rates and strata fees, I only need 300 a week, which is like ridiculous. It's so good. It's the same as renting. I love it. Um, but yeah, no, it's good. Tasha, amazing. And, and uh, it seems like you've, uh, your parents are also involved in property. Did that sort of inspire you in, in terms of, did your parents talk about property a lot and uh, the importance of property ownership when you're growing up? My parents talked about money very openly. So even as a kid, I knew what mortgages were and my parents were very open about what we couldn't, couldn't afford. And my parents worked so hard. Like my dad um, has worked overseas most of my childhood doing FIFO, but he's like sacrificed a lot to save and be where he is now. But my whole childhood, they were like, oh, we can't have Foxtel because we have to pay off our mortgage first and stuff like that. And like if we wanted to go on a holiday, we had to plan as a family the how we were going to save for it and how much it was going to cost. And we would like do pros and cons lists of different holidays as to what costs like what. And that like, that was really cool because I found out a lot of people didn't do that as kids. And I was like, what do you mean you didn't just like talk about mortgages when you were 10? But yeah, they were super open. But the really hard thing is that they're afraid of shares. Like my parents don't like the stock market and they're just like, no, no, like you have to buy property. So that was quite hard researching shares and being like, no, this is what I'm doing. Like I don't want to buy all property. Like property is a lot of work compared to just buying an index fund. Tash, I am fairly jealous of your upbringing. I mean, sorry, mom and dad, if you're listening to this now, but I wish I had that sort of training instilled at a young age. What have you taken from your upbringing about what are the good habits that you've taken from your parents that you still instill now that are really, really beneficial towards having a good money mindset, I guess? Yeah, don't buy things that you can't afford. good money habits. Yeah. So, (laughs) their big one was don't get into debt for things that you can't, like, get into debt for a mortgage, sure, but, like, don't buy a car if you can't afford it. Don't get a credit card if you can't afford it. Don't get personal loans. Like, I didn't know personal loans were a thing until I was, like, pretty much an adult. And I was like, what do you mean? People are, like, borrowing money to go on holidays. Like, this blows my mind that this is a thing that people do. So, I think the main thing is just, yeah, not buying things that you can't afford and making sure you have a plan for the things that you want to buy. Like, you can't get all these nice things in life if you don't work hard and save for them. Them. And also my dad, like his work ethic is insane. So I've learned a lot from him in terms of like sacrificing my spare time to work a lot, but like it all works out good in the end. Tash, you talk a lot uh, on TikTok about the importance of mindset a lot, and that was the biggest influence of, for you for getting a good money mindset. Uh, what is a good money mindset and what what are some of the reminders that you keep telling yourself to check in when it comes to this type of mindset? I mean, it sounds like to me that you've got this game fairly down pat. You know what you are doing. 
and you're very passionate about achieving your goal. But um, maybe unpack mindset for us and, and how that might, might help the audience sort of understand your drive and motivation to hit your goals. Oh, so this one might be a bit brutal, but like you don't deserve things just for like, you don't just like deserve a new car. Like I find that really interesting when people just buy a new car that they haven't saved for. And like it sounds a bit brutal, but like you don't deserve a new car mm. if you haven't saved for it. And I think that like a lot of people get really offended when you say that, but like you don't deserve it if you haven't saved for it. But like my biggest, like my best, I don't know, I'm really bad at living in the moment and not planning for the future. Like I'm such a forward, like I love thinking about plans. I love like planning out my whole life. Like planning is great. But I think that's really makes it a lot easier to save money because I have all these plans and I need money to achieve all my goals and to get all these things. It's like my main goal is I'd love to like achieve financial independence and have a million dollar share portfolio. But you can't have a million dollar share portfolio if you don't like work really hard and make sacrifices along the way. So I find it's easier for me to save money because like it, my whole mind is like focused on what's happening in the future versus other people who focus more on what's happening now. And like that's a bad thing for me too because I'm so bad at being like, cool, I'm going to enjoy this time at life. Instead, I'm just like, oh no, like I've got my next plan and the next big thing. And I find it really hard to like celebrate achievements. I'm like, oh, that was cool. Let's go next. What's What's the next plan? Okay, Tash, I am going to try not be personally offended, seeing as last week on the podcast, we did say Tesla about 14 times in the hopes that I would be sent a Tesla brand new. I would love a Tesla. <laughs> yes, please. A free one. How cool would that be? I would love one too, but now I am realizing uh, that, yeah, I'm pr- I probably don't deserve one. Um, <laughs> very... <laughs> Very interesting that it's it's the it's the mentality of expectation. You shouldn't just expect to have things, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, very interesting insight there. With my questions are around, so you said you had a lot of travel plans that sort of had the spanner thrown in the works due to COVID. So this is our last episode of 2020. So I'm really curious to see your mindset around how you manage things when things don't go to plan. So when your travel plans were cancelled, what changed? And how do you react when something happens that might be considered unexpected or even a failure? Like how do you deal with failure and how do you deal with change? I love change. Like I know a lot of people don't, but I really like change and I love making new plans. So when my trips got cancelled and COVID happened, I was like, okay, I'm going to buy an apartment. And that was my plan. And then I spent the next few months like buying furniture and like designing what my one of my apartment to look like. It's like, I don't, I don't know. Sure, you can have like the moments of disappointment where you're like, oh, that's a bit shit. But I'm really good at making new plans and setting new goals. And a lot of the time when I fail at something or when something goes wrong, something better comes out of it. Um, it's like I failed a unit in my first year of uni, which I was like devastated about for a little while, but it ended up being like the best thing that's ever happened to me because it forced me to go part-time and I went part-time and then I started working full-time and I traveled more because I had more time off. Like I worked a lot. I got to work jobs, like full-time jobs that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And like, I probably wouldn't have started my Instagram if I'd just done uni normally and graduated and was working full-time as an OT. It's like every failure or bad thing that happens always turns out to be something better because it like gives you more time or more choices or time to step back and reevaluate and be like, okay, cool. What do I actually want to do with my time now? That's amazing, Tash. And um, what about projecting to 2021? What are your biggest goals for 2021 in, in your life? I want to save more money and invest more. Um, no, I, I really want to build like Tash Invest into like a bigger business as well. So I'm starting up a blog soon, which would be really cool. And I'd love to start making YouTube videos. Um, and I have to go back to uni, unfortunately, to finally finish this degree that's been like seven years coming. Um, so I've got a few practice to do. So I guess just focus on that and like not get too carried away with like work on the side of it. But yeah, I'd love to grow this into like a really cool online business. It would be so much fun. Oh, that's fabulous. Um, Tash, this is actually a really important thread because I think your 
Um, your work that you're doing right now in terms of spreading the word of financial wellness, financial education to a lot of young people is a phenomenon that wasn't really around, say, five or so years ago. Uh, maybe talk us about the story about your own journey in creating your own following, particularly around the topic of money and finance, all the way from when you first started to sort of where you are now and where you want to take it in the future. Yeah, so I only started posting on Instagram, I think it was like the 1st of August or something. I like shared my first post and then what? people seem to, yeah, it's been crazy. Um, and people seem to really like it. And I was like, oh, this is cool. Because initially I was like really nervous about putting a face to it because there's so many like anonymous Instagrams. But I was like, oh, you can't really like break down the stigma of talking about money if you're going to be anonymous anyway, that kind of like defeats the purpose mm. of it. So I was like, no, it's fine. I'll just like see how it goes. And it's gone really well. And then I started making TikToks like end of September. Like that was really recent too. And they just blew up and it's like been really cool. Like it's so exciting that people actually like care about what I spend my money on. Because to me, it's so normal to talk about money and what I earn and investments, but it's not for other people. So when people find it interesting, I'm like, oh, that's so cool that you find what I spend on interesting. But like, it's great. It's been so much fun. It's like, I'd love to grow it into like a bigger community. And like, I've, sh- I've got to kind of figure out what's allowed and what's not allowed in terms of like talking about finance in Australia a bit more. But yeah, I'd love to just grow it and educate more people about like basic personal finance things. It's super exciting. Tash, what fascinates me about your TikTok is that the way we use the internet has changed so dramatically in the last couple of years. I remember, you know, 2010, everyone's falling into 3am rabbit holes watching cat videos on YouTube. <laughs> and now I'm up at 3am desperately scrolling through TikTok learning about personal finance. It's so good. It's it's insane. It's actually insane. And like it's bizarre how addicted you can get to learning more. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're doing is so fantastic because you're really empowering other people and you're delivering your information in a way that is so easily to understand and so accessible to so many people. Did you expect your TikTok to go this big? And also Second part to the question is you say you want to expand your Tash Invest business. What are your what's your big dream for that? What's your big goal for Tash Invest? So I didn't realize it was going to blow up this quickly. Like it was so unexpected. I was like, oh yeah, cool. I'll get like a thousand followers and I'll just like talk to my thousand followers. But the Daily Mail did an article on me. So I got like 2000 followers overnight from that. And like TikTok's insane. Like so many of like the dumbest videos go viral. I'll be like sitting on my floor wearing like the most basic clothes with no makeup on, rambling about personal finance for 60 seconds. And then it will get like a hundred thousand views. And it's just like, what? Like that's insane that people care about that so much. Um, I'm not really sure what my big goal for Tash Invest yet is because I haven't really had time to think about it. Like it blew up so quickly. I was like, oh yeah, I'll just make an Instagram. But then like I accidentally made a TikTok and that worked really well. And I'm going to try the blog and see how that goes. And then I'll try YouTube and see how that goes as well. What do you mean you accidentally made a TikTok? I just, I don't know. Like I just made one. I always hated the thought of making videos. I was like, there's no way I can film myself talking like this. It's so embarrassing. So I made one and then it did really well and it didn't even have my face in it. I was just like filming the compound interest calculator and it got 20,000 views. And I was like, wait, what? Like that's a bit easy. That's way easier than trying to like build a following on Instagram, which takes a lot more time. So then I started posting more. I posted like like 15 or something without my face in them, just of like my computer screen. And they did really well. So I was like, okay, I'll actually film myself and see what happens. And it blew up really quick. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. But I never expected to film myself making videos ever. And now here we are. I film myself all the time, just like talking in my pajamas. It's great. Tash, um, the topic of personal finance is very, very broad. And it covers off a lot of areas. It seems like you've got a really good grasp on how you manage your own set of personal finances. Um, But what about the other things and topics in personal finance, like an emergency fund, um, how you go about doing your budgeting? What is your own personal finance stack? What do you do to keep yourself sort of on track with your own finances and money? 
Yeah, so I have like a $20,000 emergency fund because I like to have a big buffer and I know that's considered quite a bit because it's just me and my like living costs are really cheap, but I feel a lot safer having a big buffer in case something happens or to give me more freedom. Like I'd hate to invest heaps of money and then not be able to make choices because I am like quite spontaneous, like buying the apartment or like going on trips. Like I don't want to lock myself into investing. So I have about 20K just sitting there in my emergency fund. And then my budgeting, I'm more like, I don't pre-budget. I just track my spending. So I don't like transfer money and it's like, this is how much I've got to spend. I just track my spending, which makes me be a lot more mindful of it. So I'll write down literally everything that I spend into like an Excel spreadsheet. And then I'll sit down at the end of the week and be like, was that a good week? Did I overspend? Did I underspend? Like, what did I spend too much on? Because some weeks you sit there and you write down like five coffees in like four days and you're like, oh crap, that wasn't great of me. And then you can reflect on it and then move forward. Like I don't like I don't like limiting myself with budgeting exactly, but I know that works for some people to have set amounts. Um, But I really like to be able to do all the things that I want to do. So I don't want to limit myself in that way. So I find it easier just being more mindful and tracking my spending versus having really strict budgeting limits like other people might, but it's like personal finance is personal, whatever works for everyone else. Yeah. Tasha, where do you learn or where do you you learn your information? So you're self-taught. What's your favorite places or ways to learn about personal finance? Podcasts are my favorite. So like the first ones I listened to were My Millennial Money and She's on the Money. Like the season one of She's on the Money was so good when they did like the breakdown of like what's an ETF and what's an index fund because back then I had no idea. I was like, oh, shares, cool, but like what really are shares? Um, So that was really awesome. And then My Millennial Money went into like breakdowns of like different fund managers and stuff like that, which I thought was really interesting. And then just Googling, like you can go onto all the ETF provider websites and see exactly what's in the ETFs, which is really cool. Um, I loved following My Wealth Diary. She's in the US and she has like, like really like transparent and she says exactly what she spends and what she invests in. And then I just found like the Australian versions of those ETFs, which is really cool. Um, personal finance club he's on instagram and he's in the u.s and he breaks down like personal finance concepts really basic as well he's awesome yeah and then also reddit like oz finance on reddit's really cool because people give away lots of secrets in there that's a fun one too tash it's it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and i think what you're what you're doing right now with helping a lot of young people in particular uh learn about money instead of the uh boring ways that people used to learn about money uh back in the day is absolutely amazing and i think your cohort of uh, other influencer friends that have joined you on your mission to promote financial wellness is absolutely amazing. What's one big takeaway that you want to leave with the audience today around a tip that they can take on board to help them on their own personal financial journey? This probably isn't like what everyone wants to hear, but personal finance is personal. You don't have to do what everyone is telling you to do and you don't have to follow the first person that you followed on Instagram. Like before you invest, learn absolutely everything you can about investing and then find a way to invest that works for you. There's no like one way that'll work for everyone. That's awesome, Tash. And I have one last question for you before we go. Now, Christmas is just around the corner and a lot of people will be taking time off over this Christmas break and time off means reading by the beach. Do you have a book recommendation for those listening? Yes, I don't really read finance books, but I just read The Space Between by Michelle Andrew and Zara McDonald, the girls who run the Shameless podcast. And that was such a good book. It was all about like going through your 20s and navigating your 20s. And it was it was really good read. So I'd recommend that one for sure. Awesome. Well, Tash, thank you so much for joining us today. We really, really loved having you on the show. It was so interesting to learn about you and your journey and your mindset and everything from spontaneous apartment buying to taking videos of yourself in your pajamas. Tash, if our listeners want to find out more about you, where can they find you? So I'm on TikTok and Instagram, and they're both called Tash Invest. 
Awesome. Thank you, Tash. Thanks so much for joining us. You have a lovely Christmas. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Tash. Now, Dan, Christmas is just around the corner. Will anyone in your family be getting a furry friend under the tree this year? I I don't think so, Blaze. I think me and my wife are firmly in control of my son's desires, and I think if it was up to my son, we'd have a tiger underneath our Christmas tree. So <laughs> no furry friends for us. How about you? Uh, I hope not. I like I love animals. Don't get me wrong, but I couldn't I couldn't possibly have another pet in this house. I don't think. But the reason the reason I'm talking about pets under the Christmas tree is because today we are looking at pet insurance. Uh, whether or not it's worth it. And if you are someone that is, you know, spoiling your kids or spoiling yourself with a fairy friend this Christmas season, or if you've recently adopted a pet during the uh, the pet boom of COVID-19, uh, yeah, let, we wanted to take a look at pet insurance and see, is it actually worth it? What benefits you get from it? And I'm just super interested to see whether or not it's something, it's a good financial decision. Dan, did you know that the Lost Dogs Home in North Melbourne recorded 566 adoptions in May, which is the most it's ever done in a single month in two years. Like that's peak COVID. That's peak people going, oh, I'm spending time at home. Let's get a dog. Uh, no, who would have thought, hey, during COVID? I suppose maybe people were feeling like uh, a little bit lonely at home, not getting much social interaction. Maybe we thought about getting a pet and now is the right time. That's an amazing start. Yeah, I was impressed. Also, with pets, you know, they're a long commitment, they're a financial commitment, they're an emotional commitment. And if you're looking at getting a pet or you've recently got a pet and you're thinking about taking out pet insurance, I want to know, Dan, what is the point of pet insurance? What are you covered for? What is it? Well, Blaze, firstly and foremostly, talking about pet insurance Pets are an incredibly emotional topic for a lot of people and people really see them as an extension of their own family. I think it doesn't cease to surprise me that the financial industry has now spawned off a new category of you know, protecting something that's incredibly uh, precious to us and that can be really part of the family for, for a lot of people. So in essence, uh, pet insurance really covers your pet and gives you the added peace of mind that if your uh, pet gets sick or injured, that you have the ability to claim any costly vet bills uh, if they meet the criteria of the insurance policy. So you're not really out of pocket a large deal when it comes to, you know, that bill shock when the vet sort of presents to you, hey, it's going to cost you, you know, multiple thousands of dollars to save your cat, your dog or another pet. So in essence, it just works the same as a typical insurance product would work. The way you insure your home, the way you insure uh, your contents, the way, you know, quite frankly, uh, we insure ourselves with health insurance. It's the same thing, but just for your furry friends. That's in a nutshell, Blaze. All right. So I have to admit, I am quite skeptical about pet insurance, especially after a couple episodes ago, we looked at phone insurance. And then when you really break it down, the maths didn't really seem worth it. But I'm curious, maybe you can change my mind, Dan. Are there different types of pet insurance? Is it similar to your car where you can have you know, third party only, comprehensive. What are the different types? I think there are people right now just giggling their way to this episode, probably hearing about pet insurance <laughs> for the very first time and thinking to myself, yeah, I do know how I get my third party car insurance for my car. And you know what, Blaze? To make it even funnier, it's almost exactly the same. Uh, there's three, 
there's a couple of different levels. So the levels are accident only, which just covers your pet in the event of an accident. Uh, accident illness uh, covers you for the extension of if your pet gets sick. And then <laughs> comprehensive <laughs> pet insurance. <laughs> it's a term that I think a lot of people have heard before, particularly when it comes to insuring your V-dub. But uh, this uh, cover is the is the, the big daddy of them all. It covers you for accident, illness, any preventative care, and some routine vet checks, which can be quite costly, uh, vaccinations and worming. So it's the top of the pops when it comes to uh, complete uh, cover for your pet. So... That's the three levels, Blaze, more or less. So you're right. It is pretty much completely exactly modelled off uh, the way that car insurance works. However, I can't remember if worming is covered in my comprehensive cover of my car insurance or not. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. <laughs> Dan, when you are, if you are looking at getting pet insurance, what is it that you're covered for and what is it that you should look out for? Plays like all insurance products, it depends on the level of cover that you're after and what you're sort of comfortable in uh, paying for versus the protection that you get in terms of the cover. Obviously, if it's just for accident only, you're going to be covering off your pet for things that are you know, maybe outside of your pet's control or your control, uh, where you may be able to recoup some of those vet costs in the event that your pet does go to an accident versus something that's more comprehensive, which you know covers a lot of other incidentals and sort of optional sort of extras um, that... Uh, you can potentially claim on or you can pay out of pocket depending on the excess, of course. But there is a whole variety of ins and outs about pet insurance. So I think we should probably get into some of what these things are because I think it will give people a better understanding of what you're covered for and more importantly, is it going to be worth it? And we'll cover that off towards the end of the episode. What, what are people claiming for when it comes to pet insurance? Like what are the most common claims? The most common pet claims over $1,000 blows, number one, a torn knee ligament or cartilage. Uh, number two, intestinal or your dog or your cat, you know, swallowing a foreign object. You know, it could be a, a play ball, it could be something around the home, etc. And then number three is stomach-related claims. Again, dealing with a foreign object that's entered into your pet's mouth. So they're the three big ones, Blaze, and when, when you kind of listen to those, a lot of them kind of make a lot of sense because uh, our pets are known to go after weird and wonderful things, and if they get them lodged in their throat and they swallow them, that's probably the main time where you're probably going to end up going to the vet and, and getting that stuff uh, out of there. That makes sense. I guess animals love eating and running, so of course they would be the, <laughs> the top three claims. Dan, I know when it comes to health insurance, a lot of the times you have to go through waiting periods and whatnot to be able to claim on things. What's it like in pet insurance? Do the waiting periods still apply? Is it the same? Is it different? Well, Blaze, it is It is different to the traditional, say, policy that you get with health insurance. So, for example, uh, if you're waiting for an eye test or glasses, that typically would have, say, a three-month waiting period where you just have to wait three months and then pop, you go to the optometrist and get your eyes checked out. With pet insurance, it's a bit different. When it comes to your pet, if they develop a condition, say, within the waiting period, so when you take out the insurance, it will be considered a pre-existing condition and won't be covered. So that's something that's really important, that if you think that your pet might be uh, getting sick, 
probably not a good time to consider pet insurance given that anything to do with that particular uh, injury or ailment may not be covered during the uh, during that waiting period. That sounds a little bit sus. You, you're taking it out and then they happen to get something in the three months that you're waiting for the waiting period. Then yet you're right, you're leaving it too late. I suppose if you want to get pet insurance, you want to take it out early before they potentially develop anything if they do have any hereditary conditions. That's correct, Blaze. And there are some other general exclusions that people should think about. So, for example, uh, number one, uh, there is no hereditary conditions. So there could be some pets that experience uh, conditions to do with hips, uh, which may cover multiple breeds of animals, eye conditions that can also affect a lot of breeds of animals. Dental is also not covered by most plans, and that can be quite a big one, particularly if your dog or your cat is very active and uses their teeth in their mouth quite a bit. Uh, that one is not covered, and it can also be the most expensive if you are going to a vet, uh, if your dog or cat or uh, other animals experiencing any dental pain. The cost of any elective treatments, so any orthodontics or desexing, which is completely optional, that is not covered. There is a whole stack of other conditions that people should look out for. So just like you mentioned at the top there, Blaze, you know, it does sound a bit sus, but when you break down most insurance products, really you get what you pay for. And if the cost of making the claim for some of these uh, expenses is really high, that will probably be reflected in the price. So I guess the overall uh, piece of feedback here is watch out on the exclusions because you really need to know what you're buying with the product to find out what you're covered for and what you're not to avoid any nasty surprises when you rock up to the vet. The general exclusions seem very, like almost too general to the point where you don't really seem like you're getting covered for a lot of things. Like you mentioned hip conditions, eye conditions, hereditary conditions, dental, desexing, orthodontics, illnesses. Like I'm, I'm beginning to wonder what you're actually covered for. Dan, what else do you need to consider when you're looking at pet insurance? Is there anything else sneaky? Blaze, I think one of the big ones that is in a lot of policies is what's known as bilateral conditions. Most policies do have a special clause where they say if your pet has, say, two of something, like obviously ears, eyes, and legs, this bilateral condition means that if your dog, for example, has a bung eye, then basically both your eyes will not be covered. The same goes for your legs. If your dog or your cat uh, or any other animal has one type of ailment of one of those limbs, then none of the limbs will be covered, which really sounds quite intense when you really think about it because dogs are always and cats are always going to get in some nigglies here and there. And it basically excludes anything to do. And as I was just reading this, place, I was wondering what else is there left? Um, you know, uh, it, it really... <laughs> Your tail. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Actually, that's right. And uh, I was going to say nose, but you've got two nostrils. So uh, I'm not sure whether that would be considered, but it does seem like the exclusions are fairly specific. And if I'm if I'm just reading more into this, the more things that could potentially go along with your pet, the more likely you are to probably trigger one of these exclusions. And so I think what would be really interesting to uncover is what are you actually covered for and then what are the benefits? The bilateral conditions sound a little bit ridiculous. So if you have a pre-existing condition on one limb or something that you have more than two of, you're not covered if something else happens in the future. So that just sounds a bit ridiculous. So I'm guessing that if you're getting pet insurance, get pet insurance for a snake. 
They don't have two <laughs> legs or four legs or <laughs> except you might be you might be a little bit um stuck if one of their eyes is bung but is oh god. Okay, so there's a lot of exclusions. What are you covered for? So please, depending on the level of cover, it covers you for quite a different range of things. So if we think about the basic cover, the bare bones one, uh, and say the accidental injuries, it could be things like bone fractures, burns, any type of motor vehicle incidences, or even snake bites. And then when you go up to the ultimate cover, it includes things like uh, major dental, uh, routine care, and alternative therapy which is quite interesting. We'll have to uncover and find out what alternative therapy is. Um, What's alternative therapy? I'm imagining like a naturopath for your pet. We have a look. Or sound healing perhaps. Laughing laughing yoga for your dog? What's alternative therapy, Dan? Oh, you're going to love this. Blaze, just when you thought, just like you with your own health insurance policy, you can go down to the acupuncturist your dog may be eligible, your cat or any pet, for acupuncture <laughs> therapy. <laughs> Who would have thought? What? Okay, okay. So uh, this is this is just bizarre to me. You're covered for acupuncture, but you're not covered for hereditary conditions, the dental, bilateral conditions, desexing. Like surely. Surely more people are having their pets desexed than they are having their pets have acupuncture. Maybe that's why they didn't cover it because then they don't have to pay it out. Totally, Blaze. I suspect that is the case. What other alternative treatments are there? Well, there's things like chiropractic manipulation, uh, hydrotherapy, uh, and also physiotherapy as well. I am, I'm just becoming completely illuminated on this other part of uh, pet wellness, Blaze. I never knew this, this stuff existed. I thought, I thought careers in the pet world i thought you know professional groomers people trainers even pet psychics perhaps or (laughs) behavioral specialists but i was not imagining pet physios chiros or acupuncturists absolutely how much are you spending to have your pet covered for acupuncture and all that jazz (laughs) each month well the Typical coverage is anywhere between $20 to $60 per month per pet. And so when you consider that per pet is generally uh, going to live anywhere between 10 to 20 years, the emotional and financial commitment that it all contains, that could be an overall premium on the life of your pet of approximately about sort of $1,200 worth of insurance premiums that, uh, you know, if you speak to any pet owner, you probably would call that an investment rather than a cost. So... Yeah, it's it's actually quite a reasonable degree of cover uh, as in terms of costing, but I think what it's really going to boil down to, Blaze, is, is it actually worth it? Is it worth it, Dan? Blaze, from what I can consider here, when you consider all the potential exclusions of all your pet is going to get into and all the things that uh, you might be up for as a pet owner in terms of costing, uh, I'm going to be on the fence on this one. And the reason why I'm going to be on the fence on this one is that it's a fairly low cost, and depending on your own financial situation, sometimes $20 or $30 to cover you for those really big out-of-pocket expenses, if they can't pass and they don't meet the exclusion criteria, could actually be worth it. Insurance is often one of those topics that you wish you had it when you had the event, and you, there is no turning back when you don't. So I think if somebody is really managing their own financial affairs, 
you could argue that that's probably the time you should have insurance because you're more likely to have a shock in your own household situation when it comes to actually uh, paying for your pet's bills. If, however, you think that you're not going to be pre-exposed to those type of conditions or you haven't had any runs of where your pet has accidentally had accidents, you actually may not consider it to be worth it at all. But the reason why I'm also torn as well is because it's one of those things where people that often can't afford insurance are probably the ones that need it the most. If you're on a low enough income uh, and you're going to be more susceptible to a shock of where you're going to have a huge out-of-pocket expense, it could be a great peace of mind, particularly if it only comes down to, say, $20 per uh, per month. It could be something to, to look into. But I think it's going to be, and pardon the pun, horses for courses, where having a look at the PDS and considering whether or not it is appropriate for you. I know it's a classical sort of answer that we often give in these type of things, but it really is the case. Having a look at the policies and uncovering what you're eligible for and what you can claim on is the key critical differentiator. And I'll just end on this sort of example is I had an own personal situation where uh, I was reviewing my home and contents insurance. And one of the things that I thought I was covered for actually turned out to be not covered, which was covering my home and contents when I was going out of town. And I was quite thankful that I checked that because uh, I was traveling very frequently. And for me, paying uh, insurance on an ad hoc basis to travel all the time ended up being quite expensive. And I actually moved to an insurance policy after carefully reading a PDS that said that I could be covered for expenses out of the home. And I think that analogy applies to your life and pets. If your pet is susceptible or is really active um, or maybe before has gone into situations where it'll be this little bit dicey, maybe investing in pet insurance could be the right thing. But again, the PDS is going to tell you exactly what you need to know so you can make the best decision. All right, Dan, so you've read the PDS. What are your final thoughts on pet insurance? Parting, parting words of wisdom, parting thoughts. Blaze, I think you you, know, you probably won't, won't expect this answer, but my, my final thoughts on pet insurance are is that whilst pet insurance does cover you for some pretty big out-of-pocket expenses if they arise, what I think is probably the more prudent thing is if you are going to encounter a lot of these expenses, what you should probably be doing is incorporating managing your pet or pet care in your own budget. And I think that's probably the best precaution, just like you have an emergency fund for yourself and you have uh, any short-term situations that you can get yourself out to, which would cover things like pet expenses. Consider the lifetime that you're going to have that loved uh, part of the family, um, all the enjoyment that you're going to get and actually putting money aside so you can protect them at a time of need. And I think that will basically uh, make you self-insured so you don't have to consider any type of insurance product. That would be my first piece of you know, general uh, commentary here is that if you can afford to do that as part of your own emergency fund savings plan, then I think that's probably the best place to go. If, however, you feel like there's some things out there that are potential risk factors, then maybe consider insurance. Well, Blaze, uh, there is no shortage of skepticism here about uh, insurance and our uh, beloved friends over at choice.com.au have awarded pet insurance in 2019 uh, a Shonky Award. And for those who aren't familiar with the Shonky Award, <laughs> it's basically the lemons of any type of electrical device, insurance policy, financial product uh, that gets called out by uh, choice.com.au in their overview of uh, whether or not these products are actually 
live up to the hype or live up to what they say they can do. And one of the overarching themes was is that the reason why they won the Shonky Award because of the huge number of exclusions when it comes to claiming. And I think there's probably a lot of exclusions that we haven't covered off today in our conversation, which is something that I think the more you read, the more you'll say, actually, what can I actually claim on? And that's uh, that's something for people to consider as well, is that if you don't feel like some of these uh, items that that are covered are worthy enough for insurance, then you know, in your case, you probably shouldn't be uh, taking it. But yeah, I think I, there's more that the pet insurance could actually do to make the insurance more worthwhile to people and cover them for things that you actually do like health insurers. The reason why we have health insurance is because it's going to cover us in moments of need. Whereas here, what it sounds like is we're going to cover you for everything else besides the most important stuff. So I think mm. the market's probably read it long. People are probably going to be more than happy to pay and hire insurance premium if they're going to get the coverage. So that would be my final thoughts, Blaze. How about you? Very interesting. I can't believe the entire pet insurance industry was awarded a Shonky Award. That is, that's insane. You know what? I feel like we discussed the news at the top of the episode about the ACCC providing some recommendations in regards to mortgage lending. I feel like the ACCC should do an overhaul of pet insurance and come back with some recommendations like make your general exclusions not so general that they cover almost anything that could potentially happen to your pet. My, my skepticism hasn't really traveled anywhere, Dan. If anything, it's gotten worse. Now having an understanding of how much is excluded with the policies, it's tricky because you're paying for peace of mind, really. However, when the insurance doesn't really cover anything, how much peace are you really going to be getting by paying out this insurance premium? Absolutely, blows. And I think the first thing for me to do is actually uh... – consult Google and just find out where my local dog acupuncturist is because I don't think I've ever seen one of those billboards. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, who knows? That's I like dogs. Perhaps that will be a later in life career change for me. Acupuncture and dogs. Very, very niche. Thanks for tuning in to the final episode of the year of We Talk Sense. If you like the show, please do us a favor and share this episode or an episode that you really like with a friend or family member so you can spread the word. Now, if you've got any feedback on topics you'd like us to cover or you've got any questions or there's something that you'd love to know, feel free to send us a message on Instagram. Our handle is at getwemoney. Ladies and gents, this is our last episode of the year. It's been a blast making these podcasts and we're looking forward to 2021. We'll be back on the 4th of January and we're really excited about the next episode because we're going to do something a little bit different. We have two guests both teaching us skills on how you can start 2021 stronger than ever and put more tools in your toolkit so you can get the most out of the year ahead. Thanks for listening all throughout the year. We really appreciate it. We love making the show and hope you have a lovely, lovely Christmas season, whether you're taking time off or working or whatever it is that you're doing. We really hope you enjoy the festive season. We'll catch you next year. See you next time and happy holidays. Enjoy. Bye.